Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I am joined by Dr. Norman Horn, the founder of LCI and the originator of LibertarianChristians.com, which is where you can find everything we've ever written and, for that matter, published as a podcast. Hey, Norman. Hey, Doug. It's good to be here with you. Yeah, so we get to answer crazy questions from our listeners. Or They're not all crazy. Yeah, they're, they're actually quite logical most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what we're doing is every now and then, Norman and I get together and we just answer some questions that we have been recently asked by those who listen to our podcast. Or we receive by email or we get just yeah. friendly and people scream at us from the or streets friends, and off the highways. Or, and, you know, the painter that was painting my house. Yeah, she asked yeah. me some questions. I'm like, oh, hey, this is probably, this would be a good question to address. Or so, they write it in the sky with a plane, you know. <laughs> that happens sometimes. Yeah, well, mine actually, she wrote it in uh, painter's tape on the wall. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Who is John Galt? <laughs> Ooh. I should write that in Sharpie on the floor before I put flooring down tomorrow. It's a great idea. That's a wonderful idea. This is great. And 100 years from now when they rip it up, they'll be like, what is this? No, I'm totally, I'm totally doing this with the Sharpie. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I'm totally doing it. All right. Back to serious things. <laughs> so what I did do, speaking of my painter, is I actually gave her a copy of our book, Faith Seeking Freedom, because I know that even if you just have this one question, you actually probably have 101 more questions yeah. or 102 more questions that uh, Faith Seeking Freedom, available at libertarianchristians.com. You can get it on Audible. You can get it on our website to download an audiobook. You can actually get a print copy. You can get a Kindle copy. You can get many copies. And if you send us 20 bucks at LCI, we will send you two copies so you can give one to a friend. Or you can read them both copies if you want. That's impressive if you do that. Yes. Especially if you pick up the second copy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing at the person who will never do that. Okay. Yeah. Question number one. We're going to go into questions that are not in the book. Okay. Because yeah. we've we're doing episodes about the questions of the book. This is not that episode. <laughs> this is from John in California. I'm afraid that if I get vaccinated, I'll lose my libertarian membership card. What should I do? My first thought here is, my gosh, where did you get your membership card? Yeah. <laughs> Who issued I it? I want one. <laughs> <laughs> so that I can evaluate their credentials and make sure they're yes. truly libertarian, right? <laughs> yes. Does it have their, you know, licensing requirements on there? Oh. Like, you're a certified anarcho-capitalist or something? Yeah, right. <laughs> and who's doing is, that? <laughs> is there a state-issued ID for NCAPs? <laughs> Yeah, you know, considering that we do believe in, you know, independent third-party verification and validation services such as this, maybe this is a business idea. Ah, there we go. Yeah, we'll see if, there we'll we see go. If that goes. <laughs> so this question is, we're, we're making light of it at first, but of yeah. course, but this question really is a serious one because like the rest of the world, libertarians are very divided over whether or not people should get vaccinated and I think it may not be well, a libertarian. Specifically, we're talking, you know, what, COVID vaccine, right? Well, yes, of course. We're recording this in August uh, of, yeah. of 2021. So clearly everybody's talking about those kinds of, yeah. of, of the COVID vaccine variety. And so for many people, 
And lately, I've been seeing this badge on Facebook by a lot of my libertarian friends that says, I have a healthy distrust of authority and I'm still vaccinated. (laughs) So clearly, there are many libertarians and some of which who are very much leaders in the field of libertarianism, you know, up and coming voices, or not even necessarily up and coming, but have already arrived and are good voices in the libertarian world have been vaccinated. And there are also libertarians who are really, I don't want to use the word afraid, but they're against either being vaccinated or they're definitely against forced vaccinations and whatnot. So Norm, I don't know what you think, but I just kind of wonder as we think through this topic that just because the state guidance is that it's, that should be done, it doesn't mean that you just shouldn't do it. Like it can be good on its own merit to get vaccinated or it could be bad on its own merit in any particular given in, you know, circumstance. Well, you're a scientist. You tell us the answer. What does science say? <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't well. resist. That's slightly sarcastic, but you do understand this way more yeah. than I do in terms of the science. So I'll let you speak now. I am convinced that there is plenty of merit to at least what I know th- about the mRNA vaccines. I think some of the criticisms that I've heard are not very substantial. And I, I don't see that the logic really follows from some of the arguments that people make against that technology. However, that is not to say that you are automatically disqualified from having a concern. And that if you and your reasoned choice through things have decided that you're not going to do it, I'm, I'm not, it's not my place to force you into things. And do any of that it would seem to be rather illogical from two points of view. One being the libertarian side, where we don't agree with, you know, forced medical care or you know government mandated medical care like this. It also seems to me to be a little bit insincere on the scientific side to at least not have room for reasonable objection. Now that being said, if you are going to make an objection to it and you find that it's reasonable, then you need to also have some measure of openness to being proven wrong or demonstrated wrong. So I think that that's where some people kind of go wrong at times is that they make some objections and they are, you know, it's rational to have a concern such as this. But then when presented with appropriate evidence, they don't change the position. And I I think that there are demonstrable cases of that happening. But I look, again, I can't, even then, it's like you have individual liberty. But, you know, so if you have the right to make a choice on whatever basis that you want. But if, you know, it's kind of like if you you say, well, the only reason I'm not doing this is because, let's just say, like, your objection is something like, the only reason I'm not getting vaccinated is because it isn't 100% effective. That's the only reason. And then I might ask, well, okay, so you're telling me that if I could demonstrate why that's not correct or not necessary or that that argument is unsound, you would get vaccinated at that point. Is that correct? And if they said, well, yes, and then they and then I could proceed to explain why the 100 percent efficacy requirement that they're demanding is not is legitimately not possible and why and explain the science to, of that to them. Then it comes down to, okay, now are you going to throw up another smokescreen? Yeah. And I don't mean to come off as like, you know, trying to equate the two types of things per se. But it yeah. kind of, you know how we as Christians will sometimes use apologetics methods where we try to 
disarmed the smoke screens that people put up mm-hmm. you know when they ask the question like or, or they say like well i just i just can't believe you know a good god would allow evil to exist or something like that right yeah often that's not the real issue in the end i'm not saying that well that makes you a bad person you know or something to that effect if you know, end up choosing to not get a vaccine or something like that. That's not, that's not really what I'm trying to say. But what I would like you to, anybody to understand is understand why you're actually not doing it as opposed to just parroting what other people around you say. Yeah. And likewise, I don't think it's particularly intelligent or laudable to just go along with the flow because, oh, they, people say it's a good thing to do, so I do it. Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't make you extra special either. What do you think of this exercise, given the, you know, sort of ad hoc nature of objections that you just sort of spelled out tends to be the case? What if a person who is legitimately like, hey, I'm really not sure I want to take this this vaccine to sort of say, okay, what information, actually, this is what you did with me. Um, <laughs> what information, I'm thinking about it. What information do you need to know? Like, what objections do you have? Yeah. Do you need to overcome before you get the vaccine. Now, I know some people are going to say, well, that should not be the onus of whatever. But like, if you're totally going to come at this with objections that are legit, and of course, there are legitimate objections. This is not a slam dunk. This is not 100%, you know, (laughs) effective. So until we're there, I guess there's always a legitimate objection to something. But if, (laughs) if you basically say, hey, here's your list of objections. Here's the reasons why you don't want to get the vaccine. Some of them are probably going to be stronger than others. But, you know, one of them, of course, was the whole 100% effectiveness. And that wasn't an objection for me when you and I were chatting offline. But there are these lists of things. And, you know, some of them still stand in my mind. And some of them are resolved. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Well, I didn't know that. But then there's these other objections. So for most people, I would say, who are still saying, I'm not sure I want to get vaccinated, or even want to say, I'm not going to get vaccinated, what are your objections and what would it take to overcome them? Like, at what point are you like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll change my mind if I learn that it's 90% effective or that it's, you know, whatever number. Or if this statistic or data were known, then I could say, okay, I'm wrong about what I think about this situation. So whatever that laundry list might be, I mean, would you think that's a good exercise for most people to be like, oh, well, once I overcome this, all these objections, then I feel a lot more comfortable doing what other people are encouraging me to do. Yeah, I think that's a good exercise to go through, for sure. Because a lot of times, what we find is that we often think that the reason why we're doing something is quite logical. We have all these reasons or whatnot. But then when we really go through the exercise of parsing out why it is that we're concerned about it, we find that sometimes it's some sort of differently rooted issue. Mm -hmm. And at the very least, I'm not trying to bring down a hammer on anybody. That's not what I would want to get at. I just want you would you lose to your understand. libertarian membership card if you yeah, did that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I just want people to understand your why. Like, really, really, do you understand the why? And if you can answer that, then I'm proud of you. Good job. If you don't have a good answer, that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to go out and, and get stuck. That's not the point. But you need to, again, understand your objections for what they really are and whether or not that those are reasons that are sound. Well, also, there's the willingness to be wrong. Like, yep. many people are hoping that the medical establishment, the F, well, not FDA, the CDC, whomever, yeah. are like either whether they think they're being untruthful or whether they just think that they're wrong. Like, you would genuinely want people to be willing to admit that they're wrong, but you know, mm-hmm. you have to do that to yourself too. Yeah. I just want people to 
realize that there often are many, many, many ways we can fool ourselves and that a measure of self-reflection can go a long way in helping one to become you know, more aware of the reality behind their emotional state in this regard, mm. because it's not always immediately evident. We're not always the best judges of our own minds. And it takes some effort of stepping outside of ourselves and really thinking through things mm. deeply to garner you know, a better level of awareness and to get out of the kind of trap of the clickbaity approach to our reasoning at times where it's like, oh, I saw this in this place and this in this place. I mean, this is what happened. I read a headline that said. I read, yeah. I read a headline that said uh, that uh, hydroxychloroquine was a great thing. And it seemed to be working at, you know, at some clinic in Houston or whatever. So that means, <laughs> like, okay, like maybe you're right, but did you go a step deeper? Did you figure out, like, there's a lot more to it. Than I heard just, that the vaccine doesn't work on three-year-olds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Great. That's that's just me making something completely. Yeah, but like, there's up. any number of ways to get you know bad information. So you know, it behooves us to really understand our whys and just know what we're doing. You know, if you make the conscious choice because of one way or another, then I think that you're doing another thing relating kind of back to the original question is you can't be that afraid of what other people are going to think. You just yeah. can't. Yeah. You know, I'm sorry. Like, you got to... If we as libertarians purport to be independent thinkers and willing to go this extra mile in order to reason through things, then the last thing we want to do is not treat each other like adults when we're trying to make these decisions for ourselves. Yeah. And that's, I guess, my final kind of message is that I, I keep reiterating this over and over again. Like when I talk to various people on this topic, it's like we seem to be losing a lot of ability to have adult conversations around these things. You know, even in my own company, we talk about having, you know, the adult contract where we're able to work through ideas and propositions and, and arguments, you know, in the good sense of the word argument without fear of reprisal. Mm -hmm. You know, like th this is not some sort of, judgment stand that we're about to be upon yeah because we're looking to better each other and we have to care about each other enough to be willing to work through that process with each other and if we don't then you know maybe we need to kind of like take a step another step back and think about the principles that we have surrounding that too mm. yeah well and you know that's a good culture to have especially in a company and it's too bad that we don't quite have that in our society which by the way we'll kind of get to a question that's similar yeah. to that here in a little bit but we're going to switch gears to a slightly different question. Actually, a very different question. Although, I guess, you know, I don't know. We'll see. John in New Mexico asks, is there really any use in thinking about politics in terms of left versus right anymore? That's a really good question. What do you think? My first response there is that I still think there's probably some use in thinking about left versus right. But the operative thing here is that once you kind of really understand what it is about leftism and also the right, rightism, <laughs> that we kind of understand through history, that when we really understand what those things constitute, you realize that there's a lot of things like even, you know, like Donald Trump for being as supposedly right wing as he was is really just a soft leftist as well mm. by kind of historical definition, if you will. I mean, right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so maybe like, 
the waters are getting muddied in with regards to where the parties actually fall. But I don't think that the qualifications of that which is on the left or, or something that is kind of on the right is like totally irredeemable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, it's interesting because a lot of people, I mean, when was the last time you really met a person who said, I have no, just to use the word left and right here, I have no values that overlap with those on the left or the opposite, right? Like yeah. most of the time you talk with somebody, they're like, oh, well, yeah, I'm pretty conservative on this one issue on everything. But, you know, I really still think we should have a minimum wage. Or I really yeah. still think we should, you know, have a safety net or a welfare state or like... You're a road socialist. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> or, or like, I'm a conservative, but... Or I'm a liberal, but... I don't like the word liberal for the left because they're not... Yeah, well, I'm a progressive, but... Yeah, I'm that. a progressive, but... Most people have those sorts of nuances. So they don't really... I mean, they might identify as more right-leaning. I mean, the word hyphen-leaning is kind of into the nomenclature right-leaning, left-leaning is kind of how we talk about people. Like, I'm on, I'm on the right, I'm on the left. Oh, I'm right-leaning. That's kind of where we are at this point. So I think to some extent, you can also use it as a jumping-off point to maybe illustrate how it's sort of an anchor in your conversation, I would say, in that you can simply say, oh, well, yeah, that's how these two people think. But if you expand your axis or you change the axis a bit, you can see that there's authoritarian versus non-authoritarian and more free, and how both people on the right and the left yeah. will have authoritarian natures and more libertarian or anti-authoritarian tendencies. And so everybody knows about this other political grid, political compass or whatever, which is more of four quadrants. And so I think there is a sense in which you can use it as a rubric for jumping off into a conversation. But in terms of thinking about politics of left and right, it's pretty like, you know, there are no two issues to every topic, right? In Iceland, they have like 12 parties. And each of those parties is dedicated essentially to, and of course, they don't have the same type of system that we do. They have a parliamentary system. Like there's a party dedicated to like helping the elderly. No, not the elderly. Those who... um have infirmities or are disabled or something like that, right? And then there's another party, which is more libertarian-esque. And there's another party, like there's many different parties. And it's just not in the American way of thinking that there are 12 different approaches to a particular issue. Yeah. <laughs> there's like two, and then maybe a blend of them in some fashion or, or a compromise or whatever, you know, like, you know, the road socialist, so to speak. Yeah, there's... It's like there's only two ways to think in this world, yeah. binary or not. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's a terrible uh, joke here, guys. No, it's good. It's good. <laughs> uh, which leads us to our third question from John in Texas. Why don't you guys just call yourselves Conservative Christian Institute? It is sometimes very difficult to see a difference between libertarians and conservatives. Yeah. This happened well, to be the question similar, not in the same way. It's like, well, what's the difference between a libertarian and a conservative? Because a person who asked me, another person, not John in Texas, who asked me was like, you know, I hear people say that they're a libertarian and they just seem like they're a conservative. And, you know, it depends, of course, on the person who's speaking. But we're not called a conservative Christian Institute because we're libertarians. And I know that doesn't necessarily say much, but I guess it begs the question, what? does it mean to be different from conservatives if it sometimes seems like we share a lot of their values? And, and we want to be clear here that we're talking about political conservatism. This does not mean 
theological or religious conservatism, there is probably in some ways more overlap there. But I guess it always depends because we have people on both sides of the theological divide as well. So, Norm, what are some of the ways that we as libertarians differ from political conservatives? Probably the biggest one is that the role of government in society has a actually a pretty stark difference to the conservative. The conservative does not agree in a sense with the non-aggression principle in as much as that the role of political force or physical force in society is only relegated to self-defense. But mm. in addition, the conservative attacks on a bunch of other values to that. You know, suddenly things like maintaining a certain form of order is important and maintaining to an effect, you know, certain morality even can go so far as to maintaining certain types of polity in a geographical area, you know, which would include borders and various types of systems and whatnot. So they see a need to kind of conserve these sorts of things. And sometimes they're not totally wrong in the sense that there's a value to having, you know, certain traditional types of systems and whatnot. The issue comes is that they often believe that it's the state that maintains them. And the outgrowth of this tends to look, you know, a few different ways. One is that in order to be able to do that, in the end, you gotta have a military. Mm. And that's, I think, kind of the even on some level, the root of where this desire to have strong militaries that maintain themselves. It's funny to consider that we're, you know, in the Constitution, we were not even the original Constitution of the United States. <laughs> and I say that kind of with tongue in cheek because like, we still technically have it, right? But we're not supposed to have a standing army. Hmm. And yet we do. You know, like, and so, so why is that? Well, ultimately, it's because there's a certain form of political conservatism. That Kill the wants, terrorists. Yeah, well, we got, well, but it was, but it was before that too. Before that, it was communism. And then it was, you know, this, that, and the other. Uh, I mean, this goes back to really like the Civil War in many respects. Yeah. And that's a whole nother story, right? But these are things that ultimately conservatives value that libertarians do not. And so that's a big, big deal. In addition, I think this is where you get other types of homogenized values that result in things like the drug war being considered a value to them. So it becomes like, well, certain things are acceptable, but certain things are not. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we need to maintain that through the use of force. We're going to do that through the use of a military, through the use of a police, and so on, and through the use of legislative action. And because we maintain this mythos of the, the rightness of the laws that we create de facto, then that's, you know, well, you know, it's where we get this, well, it's just the law. You're supposed to follow the law. We made the law together. As opposed to realizing that really the only law that exists is that which is transcendent to us. The rest is just legislation, you know, and the rest is optional. Yeah, well, well, and this and this also results in the refusal to see that the free movement of free peoples is a value. And they even try to, to break this up into talking about whether or not, you know, what do we mean by open borders? And, oh, well, then, well, you just mean that just let's let everybody in willy-nilly or something like that. Right. Because they try to cast it in this very negative light, even though (laughs) that the open borders position has been historically the one that the United States has taken, you know, what with the melting pot approach that we've had for, that we had for, you know, 200 years. It's only been the last, what, 25, 30 years where this has really been the problems. Suddenly, you know, so I think that that's, 
those are just a few of the, of the different things. And so, yes, there are these convergent things that you'll sometimes see. You know, it's funny that it was not that long ago when conservatives were, were supposedly the ones that were against tariffs and the left mm. or the, the progressives were the ones that were for it. But then we had 2016 come around and suddenly, you know, China's not going to play fair. I guess we need to have tariffs now. So, eh. you know, it was previously it was things like also the minimum wage was something that, that has been of issue and that they flip flopped on. Oh, and another the good old bugaboo of socialism. It's like, well, yeah, conservatives love to say they're against socialism until they're not, you know, <laughs> and that's like Social Security and, and border socialism and let's. I mean, geez, I, here, even, here's something I want to pause on because this is the border socialism is <laughs> sort of a point that I don't think conservatives tend to get. So if you're a conservative listening, here's the point. When someone uses the analogy, well, you wouldn't just let someone in your house without the door being locked, like without your permission, like you would have or on your property or whatever. Like you don't just leave the door unlocked. You don't leave the gate open <laughs> or whatever, right? So the analogy is supposedly that because we believe in private property and we believe that trespassers are trespassers of the law, that there's this border that America owns that is a property in some fashion that an immigrant or a person who doesn't live in the United States or uh, isn't a citizen of the United States can't come without the permission of the government. And it's like, well, who, who owns this? Well, America owns this. Oh, I'm sorry, who's part of America? Oh, we are. The people are. Oh, we own something. We own some. Oh, we own something together that someone else can't cross. I'm sorry. That's pretty much the definition of socialism. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations. You're a border socialist. You're no. a border socialist. Yeah. No. Just because, because we've answered these objections in the book a little bit, and I've yeah. actually answered them on a very recent episode of this podcast regarding the border. And when people talk to me about immigration, I do understand. I don't want to just say that there are zero. There are. There are not zero concerns about what does a good, compassionate, wise border policy look like. But you can't say that you're for freedom when you're looking for reasons to restrict people's freedom. You can't say that you're against socialism when your reasons for saying they can't be here is because we own this property and you're using this weird analogy that it does not work. By the way, Faith Seeking Freedom, read the book to find out why. <laughs> Although I probably just pretty much you know opened that one up. You can't say you're about freedom. And you also can't say you have that you're about people because this is people we're talking about coming across the border, none of which agreed to abide by the laws you think are de facto moral. Just keep that in mind. Again, we can go through here and talk about this more. I would say let's talk about that. Or you can listen to more on that issue with the other podcasts. Buy the book. (laughs) Yeah, buy the book, other podcasts. That's why we're here to promote anyway. So anyway, those are, those are some of the differences between conservatives and libertarians, you know, and of course, you know, the book actually addresses some of this in a different form, but hopefully that'll get you started and be like, oh, well, oh, and honestly, I mean, Norm, both you and I, I think roughly, if I were to ballpark one of the reasons why we both became libertarians, it was because some of the core values of conservatism, which allegedly are freedom, were not consistent with freedom. Oh, for sure. And what we did was say, well, wait a second. That's a really important value. It's a really good American value in terms of individual freedom. Well, wait a second. The drug war doesn't really do that. Immigration policy doesn't really, you know, the conservative immigration policy doesn't really, it's not really consistent. And so it's just kind of unraveled from there. Now, it unraveled for each of us differently. But anyway, that's why we're no longer conservatives. And 
we're libertarians. And so now we are the Libertarian Christian Institute. Damn. By the way, a federal nonprofit where you can donate tax hey, yeah. deductible donations. <laughs> Amazingly, they gave us that status. <laughs> Shameless self-promotion here <laughs> yeah. in a week. Yes. Okay. We're going to get to two hard questions and we're going to end with a fun one. First question from John in Louisiana. It's becoming very clear that the big social media outlets are hostile to our ideas, given that as libertarians, we don't think it's right to ask the government to force them to provide us with equal treatment since they are private companies. What should we do? So this is an interesting concern, and it contains within it some pieces. It's basically like, hey, well, we can't advocate that the government make social media outlets enforce free speech because they're private companies, and they don't have to do that. Because at a private company or on a private property, you can't say or do whatever you want. And so these companies own the servers or rent the servers, and so the property rights are such that they get to set the rules, we get to participate. What do we do? if uh, they seem to be hostile to our ideas, which I think is possibly questionable. We can talk about that. What do you think, Norm? Mm, so many things, so many things. You want to deal with the hostility first? <laughs> is that really what's happening? I mean, it has happened. I mean, we've seen some people get banned due to certain yeah, things, I, but... Yeah, I think that, that there's varying levels of hostility and and there's... I guess there's, I mean, there's good reason to be concerned about it. I understand, I, I think I get that. But they're also like, you could come to the conclusion that they really do that when it becomes evident that it's an actual threat to them, to the hegemony of the uh, establishment on some level. And I guess that, that has some, some merit as an argument that could be there. And that's why perhaps they're not being particularly draconian with regards to, you know, censoring discussions about anarcho-capitalism is that like, for instance, we're, well, maybe we're just not really a threat to them and they know it and that's fine. Like, okay. Cause yeah, I mean, why, why would you think it's a, somebody as a threat when, you know, they're, they're advocating, you know, <laughs> a peaceful society that doesn't use force against each other. I mean, imagine that. I mean, <laughs> but uh, I guess the, when it comes down to it though, it's like, to me, these are issues that are certainly important in the sense of like there's deeper values here than just saying, well, it's, you know, it's free speech. I get that, you know, it, it, look at, or, or in the case of, in this case, it may be like, well, they, it's not the government doing it. Therefore you can't really use free speech arguments like this. It's like, okay, I, I sort of, I get that, but there's also the deeper value of desiring free inquiry it's one thing that when, say, a private group wants to center conversations in a certain way, and so they try to make an environment that's most conducive to a certain type of conversation. You mean like a Facebook group? Like a Facebook group. <laughs> Facebook.com slash Libertarian Christians. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's one thing. But like when the platform does it, I can understand why people would want to object and advocate for something different. But I also like would have to say like, how did we ever get freedom disseminated as, as ideas without the internet in the first place? It's like, <laughs> and, maybe, and maybe you could say, well, well, we, you know, it happened. It just was much lessened mm -hmm. without the internet. I was like, okay, sure. But the remnant's always going to be there. Yeah. There's always going to be ways to go and do something different. And we will find ways of arranging ourselves to make stuff happen. Yeah. And so on some level, like I'm sympathetic to all these points, but also I'm not worried that this is the straw that breaks the camel's back or something like that, I guess. I, 
I don't know. Does that make sense? Because I know we'll be able to make our way around things. I mean, we, yeah. Facebook was barely around during the first Ron Paul revolution in 2008. Not a lot of people were on Facebook at that point. And yet we did more then than we have been doing now. Yeah. So what's the problem? I guess. Well, <laughs> I, I want to talk about the concern that you said there's deeper issues here. And I, and I have actually, I've truly lamented many times in the last year probably the last year and a half. So this is August of 2021 and then we're recording this. So we've had about a year and a half of a pandemic Mm -hmm. with a little bit of an end in sight. I mean, I don't think we're out of the weeds. There's light at the end of the tunnel. However you want to define that statement, there's light at the end of the tunnel. This is not going to last forever, okay? Yeah. Over the last year and a half, I have seen a notable number of people just capitulate to things like I don't want to call it just about cancel culture, but it's this idea that free speech and free thinking and just freaking letting people's words, like just ignoring them, like let them roll past you. You don't have to have an opinion about everything everybody says. You don't have to tell everybody else what you think, okay? And just because we disagree on something doesn't mean you have to unfriend me. Or doesn't mean that you have to cancel me. And you can come up with any reason you want to say, oh, well, that person has dangerous ideas. Because as soon as you say that about a person and their ideas, you've given yourself permission to just simply do whatever you want. Because at what point do you really believe that they have dangerous ideas? Because they believe in free speech? Because they won't believe in mask or vaccination mandates? Because they don't believe in whatever. You pick it, right? And so I've seen this. Now, I will, I will grant that this is mostly on the left right now, but I truly lament the loss of a free speech culture. And so this question of whether or not it's a private company is not the issue I want to address when I yeah. talk to people about free speech. Yeah, it's symptomatic. It is a huge symptom of, and, and again, I realize that Facebook and social media like Twitter, it feels public. Because it's very public, it's very, you know, people are actively there. I mean, that's where people hang out, right, in a certain way. And so it's, it feels public, even though it's a private company. And I realize that there is a blurry line between public and private when it comes to some of these. But at the same time, you don't have to be there. But, well, let's go back to what you say all the time, Norm, when people say, what do we do, right? The most improved unit. Now, I'm going to take that one step further. So first of all, the one most improved unit that you talk about all the time is, well, how can I affect my life in this way? Like you, Norman, are not going to change Mark Zuckerberg's mind or whomever is making these decisions, right? You're not going to change his mind. Highly unlikely. You might change, I mean, depending on your influence, you might change a number of people to move protests or whatever. You know, that could happen. I'm guessing if you're listening to this podcast, you don't have, you know, Joe Rogan level of influence. Okay. Um, <laughs> although Joe Rogan, yeah, yeah, if you listen to this podcast. Joe Rogan, if you're listening, <laughs> we would love to so, talk. <laughs> the most improved unit. But I have been, as, as my kids are about to enter into homeschooling year two, I really, really want to incorporate into them, instill in them a culture of free speech and that you do not have to be offended by something just because you react to it. Your reaction doesn't have to be offense. You can choose to say, oh, I understand where you're coming from. I don't agree. And then talk about it. And, you know, anybody who has kids who can argue knows that, or just kids, 
plural, knows. <laughs> kids that can argue or just kids? <laughs> well, just, well, kids that can communicate with each other, you know that some of them, sometimes they just get offended by what the other one says. He hurt my feelings. And I'm like, when did this become what happened to adults? Yeah. For those of you who are like mildly interested in this, I'm just going to pause on this topic for a second and say, if you haven't watched some of the most recent stuff from Bill Maher on HBO <laughs> regarding culture of free speech, he's as outraged as we are about this. And he's on the left, like as in, you know, the traditional left, like the left that you, you know, the Hillary Clinton, you know, the 90s, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton left. And he's just like, this is crazy what we're dealing with. Like people can't just let people have differing opinions. They have to cancel them because they somehow see them as an existential threat because they have a different idea or something like that. That's on his words. This is just me, you know, paraphrasing what I'm, what I'm hearing. So anyway, back to that particular question. You can instill in your kids. You can be your own most improved unit. And the unit as a parent, if you have parents, if you have nieces and nephews, and just as a witness to a free society, instill in people the importance of freedom of speech and freedom of action, freedom of nonviolence. And what will, people will try to do is they'll try to say, but what if your speech incites violence? Well, you have to get into the arguments about what that actually means legally. You also have to realize that, of course, you don't want, obviously, we don't advocate for that at all, okay? So there are deeper arguments on that, but free speech is really important. It's in the Constitution for a reason. And it is, yeah, I don't know. I could just keep saying it's important, it's important, it's important. But that <laughs> is a value. I mean, obviously it's important. This is why the question is being asked. It's why we're answering it. It also happens to be very similar to our next question. So free speech is important. We all know this. How do we promote it more? How do you get more people to agree and see that we are right about this? And value it, not just see, oh yeah, okay, yeah, okay, I see free speech is good. No, value it in a sincere way. Because if you don't have that, Oh, man, that's a big one. So it is a symptom, as you said, Norman, of something really, really deep that needs to be addressed upstream, as it were. Yeah, I like that. I don't know. <laughs> did we even cover the second question? I kind of feel like we kind of talked about it. I'll read it. So this is from John in New Jersey. If a private social media conglomerate, I love the use of the word conglomerate, it just sounds fancy. <laughs> if a private social media conglomerate is enforcing speech restrictions on its users that were pushed by government, what recourse should we pursue to change the private enforcing public mandates? The person asking this might actually have in mind the fact that the press secretary of the Biden administration recently admitted, said, announced, I forget, eh, I think in late July, early August of 2021, that they were advising or guiding Facebook on what kinds of speech they did and did not want to be on the platform. Now, that's me paraphrasing what I recall of that news item, which was, of course, pretty appalling to hear about. And it's so, what do we do about this? How do we, it's like, not only are we dealing with, okay, there's a private institution, but now we've got the government advising a private institution? Well, and especially the executive branch. Like, the answer to this is Yeah, Congress, that, real, yes. Realis like, realistically, this is Congress needs to step up and stop it. The question is, will they, of course, but I think even if, you know, if we get an, you get enough people who are like, even like Bill Maher on the Democratic side, making a fuss about it, maybe that, maybe that would have an effect. Yeah. I mean, if they're going to do it, they're going to do it. Like it, so you either got to use the legislative means to stop them or you got to, another way would be to just 
essentially lobby Facebook somehow or, or whatever social media company that is being affected by this. Or you got to use your, you know, use your right of exit. Yeah, you, know, you can always do that too. I know plenty of people who are not on Facebook. They seem fairly happy. Yeah, and I mean, and what and what better way to go from Facebook and then to <laughs> essentially be kicked off for you know being a witness? Like, if we're this worried about this, let's just like start preaching the gospel more frequently. Maybe that'll get their attention. I don't know. Maybe that's an answer. <laughs> it's because like, are they going to kick you off for that? Well, then you have a really good reason. <laughs> yeah. Well. I feel a little stuck too sometimes with some of these because like I want to be on these platforms because that's where people are as an organization. We're there because that's where people are and we want to reach more people. Imagine if yeah. LCI got kicked off for whatever reason we got kicked off or deplatformed. But, you know, basically it is going to be somewhat ad hoc in nature as we progress through this rocky terrain of cancel culture, cancel platform, yeah. deplatforming, whatever. And so it's not going to be an easy answer. I wish we had a definitive, hey, here's what we can do to fight back. The other thing you can do is you can be subversive. You can be clever. I mean, I've seen, I mean, I know that algorithms can tell whether or not you used a zero instead of an O when you write the word COVID or you put asterisk (laughs) in the word vaccinated. Like, okay, it's not like these people are not that smart, but you can be clever in those directions to speak eh, a little bit in code. There's all kinds of creative, clever ways in which you can communicate yeah. to other people and to get your message across. And then, I mean, honestly, are you going to convince anybody on Facebook of things? No. But you can actually make connections with people and then use those real connections to actually have deep conversations. Yeah. I think it's important to remember that you want to focus on that which you can change and not as much on that which you can't. That's a very yeah. kind of stoic way of thinking about it. and alludes also back to you know my the thing i like to harp on the one improved unit sort of thing you have a a limited capacity to make a change in something like this in a fast way this is important to realize in two respects one is that you may determine that in order to get the change you want to see that it's not something that you have the bandwidth or a reasonable chance of success to be able to do And so you need to focus on something else that you can change. Or if you assess that you can have an effect, but it's going to be in the long term, that you understand how to get from point A to point Z. And that you you kind of recognize that that is a long battle that you're fighting and not a short one. It may also be a battle that you don't get through the end of that alphabet to move. Well, perhaps not. And so you have to make a choice at that point as to whether or not that's worth it. But I think the idea is to focus on what you can change versus yeah. what you cannot is to realize like, okay, like I, could, I could say like, all right, I want to make a change in Facebook and I need it done tomorrow. And if the, the choice is between that versus, you know, making a different change in oneself or in one sort of environment, you may have to choose toward the other direction because you're not going to be able to change Facebook tomorrow. But if your objective is ultimately to okay, I, I want to make a change in Facebook. It's going to take a really long time. What can I change though? The little bits in front of me that direct me toward that goal. So there is a way in which you can set yourself towards this path of a big goal. By the way, this is not just something that applies in the political realm only. This is something that if you took this as kind of a life lesson, you would do well for one yourself 
and the rest of your life. Okay. Like that's a big deal to recognize one's inherent, like immediate limitations and realizing what you can and cannot change. For our next episode, we're going to have life lessons with Dr. Norman Horn. <laughs> well, I mean, how else do you become? No, I, I agree. Mean, well, okay. Sorry, I'm yeah, being uh, humorous. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> but this is the, this, I, I like, I like talking about this stuff too, because I think that you can ask one, so the question like, well, you know, how fee didn't get built in a day, you know, libertarianchristians.com didn't become LCI until seven years later, you know, and, and now we have a budget and donors and people that are, are volunteering and doing all this stuff like, but like if I had, you know, just set out immediately like, okay, now we're ready to do this 501c3 thing. And in 2008, it wouldn't have worked. And I've seen people's organizations come and go even. Mm-hmm. And people who were flashes in the pan because they tried to, to be something they weren't. Focus on what you can change. And I think that you realize that you can set yourself on a path that's good and meaningful and worthwhile. And maybe you achieve and maybe, maybe it doesn't end up working out, but at least you did, you, you processed it right. And that's important. So I think just realizing what we can and cannot change, working within that is a very meta way of like kind of mm. going about this problem that's more important than you might realize. Sounds good to me. So we have one final question from John in Pennsylvania. Why can't modern politics be solved with Choco Choco Chip ice cream? Great question. This is a sweet question. It's very sweet, yes. It's also definitely not vanilla. <laughs> Although, I don't know why we think vanilla is like bland. Because like, if you think about what vanilla beans are, it's, it's like <laughs> vanilla is anything but bland. It's a really important, uh, I don't know what to call it, spice, but uh, enhancement to yeah. a lot of things in Flavoring. life. Flavoring. Yeah. Flavoring, yeah. <laughs> All right, to the question. Modern politics. Well, I don't know what is meant by modern politics, but I'm guessing the solving the problems of our tribalism and our being pitted against each other and how it's just left versus right and how we're, you know, divided over vaccines. Here's where Choco Choco Chip Ice... I can't even say it right. Choco Choco Chip. Just call it chocolate chip. Chocolate chip ice cream. We'll go with that. It must be a brand name or something. We're probably going to get sued. Um, (laughs) um, But here's the thing. You can have ice cream with people whom you disagree with. I'm pretty sure you can have good conversations. In fact, I did that the other day. I mean, cool. the point of getting together was for ice cream, okay? And I had conversations with people I disagreed with about things. We didn't necessarily talk about the things how we can, disagree about. How can you get mad with somebody when you're having ice cream together? Like, that yeah. doesn't make any sense. I think there's a chemical <laughs> reaction. Norm, you probably know what the name of this is. There's probably a chemical reaction that happens yeah, when you're eating ice cream dopamine that, in your that brain. it's releasing something that prevents you from disliking the person you're talking to. Uh, yeah. So, like modern dopamine. politics can be solved with chocolate chip ice cream. But actually, the fact that there is something called Choco Choco Chip Ice Cream would never have happened if the government invented yeah. it, right? So if the government if the government had ice cream, it wouldn't even be vanilla flavored. It would just be meh. Be like potato flavored or it something. It would just be plain or whatever. <laughs> no potato flavored. So we know that the peak of human achievement being not ice cream, although some might say that, <laughs> is that there is there is innovation happening, right? And and I'm obviously using this a little bit tongue in cheek, I want to say. I was trying to make a pun on the fly there, but I couldn't. So <laughs> I'm obviously saying this with a bit of humor and freshness to wrap up our episode, but innovation 
is what is going to come up with solutions, right? And sometimes those are political solutions. Sometimes those are actual technological solutions. Sometimes they're just simple creativity in action to create certain types of ice cream flavors, whatever that means. But the concept of innovation is probably the best way to make political solutions obsolete. So the one question that I remember Jeffrey Tucker, I think it was a title in a Jeffrey Tucker article from like five or six years ago was, what if they invented a state or created a state and nobody bothered to use it? How do we get to that world? How do we get to the world where the state isn't necessary to solve a problem in the first place? That's a long road, but it is a road not paved by taxes. That sounds, that sounds pretty good. A road not paved by taxes. <laughs> I don't know. That's all I got for the end of the episode. It's not quite as inspiring as your uh, life lessons with Norman. I don't know. I, I kind of have one more question, though. Oh, you do? Okay. Okay. How is it that every single person that asked the question was named was John? Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 